Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You all can have a seat. So if you happen to just um, be joining us, uh, hello, welcome, y'all. Happy, happy Sunday. We're so glad to have you with us. My name's Ashley. Um, I'm, the, I'm the rector here or pastor here, depending on your background tradition. Uh, either way, it's good to have you with us. We're so glad you're here. You may have noticed that your bulletin is um, a bit outdated. Uh, that bulletin is from last Sunday. Uh, so um, all the really important bits of the liturgy, though, are there together. One of my favorite parts about being an Anglican uh, is that we do church together. It's not just two or three of us up here like putting on a thing for the rest of us to watch happen. Um, and not that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just that one of the things that has blessed me is that um, we're all in this thing together, sort of making worship happen, being the church, as it were, which is wonderful. Also a bit of a liability, uh, because when you don't have the bulletins, it means it gives people struggles. Uh, so what that, um, just to say it, all the important parts of liturgy you have in front of you. So we'll be able to pray together and do the creed together and do communion. Uh, but I'm sorry that the readings were not there for you this morning. You know, we're doing the best we can around here. Uh, for those of you who may be just joining us at Christ the King, uh, we're so glad that you're here. This is the season of Epiphany. And uh, that means that it's the time of the year in the church calendar, anyway, that stretches between the end of Christmas and the beginning of the Lenten season, which will begin in, in February. And um, I think a really lovely time for the church, for the capital C, a uh, time for us to lean into and reflect on what it means that God desires to make himself known. Epiphany comes from a Greek word that means to appear or to be made manifest. And so during Christmas... We celebrate the fact that God came, that he was born in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And then during Epiphany, we focus on and celebrate, actually, that not only did God come, but that in addition to his coming, he had to make himself known. He had to reveal himself to us. He didn't just show up and expect that we got it all. An Epiphany suggests that you have a kind of light bulb or aha moment where you get something all of a sudden. And faith works like that. I think it would suggest that sometimes it's very, um, we have every reason to believe, in fact, that God is with us all the time. Faith may be just the ability, the gift, the grace of being able on occasion to recognize him, to know him, to be with him, actually. Maybe he's just there all the time. 
So during the season of Epiphany, I think we're meant to expect, actually, that God is with you and you have every reason to believe that so long as he is with you and the Holy Spirit is who he says he is, you can have an epiphany of faith. You can come to know God and have a new revelation of Jesus. I don't care how long you've been doing this. I've been in the church a long time. I'm 38. I have not even begun to scratch the surface of who God is. I'm going to spend my whole life from now stretched into eternity learning about the beauty of God. What a gift. And every year in my life with Jesus, I'm promised that there are new revelations to be had, new things to learn, new things to see. Epiphany is a call to remember that. You don't even kind of know. <laughs> in other words, I don't care how long you've been doing this, you are beginners. We are beginners. And we live in a world that constantly pressures us to act like we're not. Always, ever, just beginning with Jesus. What a gift. So in these few weeks here at Christ the King, we are talking about and thinking about this with God life. Emmanuel, we said last week, is not just the Christmas name for Jesus. Uh, that is like when we think about what it means to be Emmanuel, like the fact that he was born here with people, yes, is part of it. But actually, um, Emmanuel means um, that God came and intended to bring with him a new kind of life, a particular kind of life, a with God life, that that's what's made available to us in the person of Jesus. God wanted to come close, be here, so that you could begin to believe and know and taste and see what it means to live your life with God, and that your life lived with God is a different kind of life than your life lived without God, <laughs> that you can have a, a new kind of life, an abundant life, Jesus called it, life to the full. That's what he came to give to you, to make available. And we talked about last week how this life with God um, holds within it certain particular movements. That if you're paying attention to the Gospels as we're reading along, there are these specific movements that people make that change them. A revelation of Jesus changes you. I would submit to you that really any kind of revelation changes you. I'll never forget the first time that I heard a Zeppelin song. I was changed. <laughs> couldn't quite put words to it, but I knew somehow I'm different now, you know? Music does that. Art does that. People do that. You have epiphanies with a little E. They change you, and an encounter with Jesus just happens to be of a different sort altogether. It changes you. Not all in an instant. For some people, it works that way. We talked about this last week. I know people who have a revelation of faith and they're forever different in a moment, like scales fall from the eyes or whatever. You know, they're just different people. For the rest of us, it's slower. It takes time. I would submit for all of us, it takes time. There's a process of change and transformation. That is part of this with God life. And we named three movements and people talk about them different ways. I'm not the smartest person, the first person to ever see this in looking at the Gospels. But the way that I named them last week were these three movements of coming to Jesus, coming to him, being with him, and then becoming like him. And it's not like, you know, once you get to the last one, you're done. <laughs> you know, it's just life of faith. It works like this, you know, orientation, crisis, reorientation orientation, crisis, reorientation. God, what I'd give if that just happened once, you know? It doesn't. Life with faith is a kind of cycle. You come to Jesus. You have to learn to be with Jesus. You have to figure out what it means to be like him, and you'll do that over and over in your life with God. But those three movements are all really essential. Last week, we looked at the story of Andrew, 
and his moment with Jesus when he came to him. And this week, I want us to focus on, kind of situate the story we read from Matthew's gospel into this larger context of these movements, because I think they matter, and we're going to be thinking about them for these next few weeks as we make our way towards Lent. Last week with Andrew, we saw a moment in a person's life when the first movement is really obvious. Andrew went from being John's disciple, John the Baptist. Um, John has his own epiphany of who Jesus is, which is pretty incredible, He has a moment where he sees and knows him, and as a result, he points his own disciples towards Jesus. Andrew makes his way to the Lord, and he's kind of following behind Jesus. Jesus turns around and says, he asks him a question. Do you remember an important question we said last week? Anybody remember? They're giving out suckers in the kids' rooms for remembering their books of the Bible. We could start that. You guys want to implement? We'll start. We'll have candy prizes for grown-ups in the sanctuary. What are you looking for? You're married to me. It doesn't count. Josh said it. (laughs) What are you looking for? Andrew's following behind Jesus. Jesus turns around and looks him dead in the eye. What are you seeking? Which I would submit to you as a question, not just to Andrew, but to every single one of us. What are you after? What do you want? What are you looking for in your life? And Andrew says, I don't know. Maybe you just want to see where you hang out. And Jesus says, come and see. Coming to him. Rather than, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. And so I take Jesus with me everywhere I go. Like Mary's little lamb. Everywhere I go, Jesus is sure to follow me. Into the life that I want as I want to live it. Into being the person that I want to be, the best version of myself. And he gets to keep me company like a genie in the bottle. Or a soul buddy. And, you know, here's the gracious and wonderful thing about Jesus. He would rather be your soul soul buddy than nobody to you at all. He's kind that way. But if you want the with God life, if you want what he came to give you, discipleship is something different. When you use the language of I'm a believer or I'm a Christian, I don't think that's a wrong way to talk about our faith. I use that language myself. But did you know it gets used very rarely, actually, in the New Testament? The word Christian only three times. To be a disciple, however, over 200 times. Discipleship is something altogether different. It's when I make the decision to follow him. Andrew says to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? It's an acknowledgement that we have something we must learn from Jesus. That's what it means to be his disciple. And your life with him will necessarily entail then actually learning from him. Like you would any other kind of disciple. Apprenticeship is other language that people use for it. And maybe helpful in our kind of like contemporary culture. To think more of yourself if you have said, I want to be a follower of Jesus. Are you an apprentice of him though? So like anybody who wants to be, I don't know, a sculptor. My brother-in-law did this. He's an artist. He did an apprenticeship as a sculptor. A tattoo artist. I like tattoos. I hear you got to do an apprenticeship. I like getting them, not giving them. Big difference. Also, if you want to be a doctor or anything else, you got to go and you got to learn. It would be a funny thing if you were a tattoo apprentice and you said, I believe in tattoos. I read a lot about them. I know a lot about tattoos. 
And your person who was teaching you said, mm, good, go and make tattoos in all nations. <laughs> you know, it might, at some point, you might have the thought, I should probably pick up a tattoo gun though, right? At some point, make sure I know how to do the thing. There's a critical gap for some of us in our life with God, specifically in our life with Jesus. We have forgotten that he is our teacher. And this is not just about your head. We've got that down. We know that faith is about knowing things and believing things. But the with God life is about being drawn into a reality in which you live your life, the things you do with Jesus. And you might say, well, you know, I just can't sit around and pray all day, though. I've got a job to do, kids to raise. Yeah. You can do all of those things with Jesus. I suspect he doesn't intend for you to sit around and pray all day. Actually, the word um, in last week's story, when P Simon goes and he spends the day, not Simon, Andrew, goes and spends the day with Jesus, the text says, and he remained there with him for the whole day. That word in the Greek, remained, is the same word that Jesus picks up again in John chapter 15 when he says, and if you've been in church, you've probably heard this verse before. Jesus says rather famously in John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Abide in me and I in you. It's apart from me. You can do nothing. A branch cannot bear fruit in of itself. That word abide is the same word for remain. It would suggest a staying with, a keeping company, abiding and remaining. How do we do that as we live our lives, you know, every day, all day? I know that I am like a professional Christian or whatever, but I swear to you, I don't just sit around and pray all day. I probably should. But, you know, life. And we've all got to figure out what does it look like to live this life with God. And what I'm saying to you is if you decide to, after you come to Jesus, make your second movement of being with him, trying to willpower yourself to doing the things that he did, if you skip this second part of being with just to becoming like, it will be a burden to you. Your faith will wear you out. It will become nothing more to you than a moral checklist and something you feel like you are constantly failing at. You're not ever doing enough or being enough or checking the boxes fast enough. What Jesus came to give us when he said, I have come <laughs> to give you the world's best moral behavior checklist, a cosmic don't and thou shalt not list, you're welcome. He didn't talk that way. I came that they might have life and have it to the fullest. And the way that you get there, Jesus said, is to know me, to be with me, abide with me, keep company with me, stay with me. How is the question? So interestingly enough, the imagery that Jesus used of abiding with him, a vine and a branch, you need to stick with Jesus the way that a branch sticks in a vine. A lot of that has to do, if you've, I don't know anything about gardening, so just, no, I'm not even trying to pretend like I garden. I don't. But some of you know a lot more about trellises and vineyards than I do. But I hear that if you want to grow or cultivate a really productive vine, you need a trellis. You need some sort of system for directing the vine so that it can grow and bear fruit in the way that it's meant to. That's a, the job of a trellis. 
What you need as a Christian is something similar. You need tracks to run on. You need a path, a plan, a set of practices that can keep your life tethered to the life of Jesus. That is not a to-do list. It's a gift and a grace. In the same way that a trellis is a gift and a grace to the vine so that it can bear fruit. What you need, in other words, being with Jesus necessitates a rule of life was the ancient word for it. Ancient Christians talked about having a rule of life. I don't like the way that sounds any more than you do. It doesn't exactly sound like an adventure. Rules. Laws. But they didn't mean a law. They didn't mean a contract and they didn't mean a to-do list. Rule comes from a Latin word, regula. You know what the image is for regula? A trellis. A rule of life is meant to function like a trellis. Give you tracks to run on in your life with God to keep you tethered to Jesus. So an example of that would be, as a Christian, part of my practice of faith, my being like him, my discipleship is learning from Jesus how to stop and Sabbath, how to take rest. And he's teaching me, he would say, painfully slowly, how to stop and rest. And he's going to keep teaching me until I get it. Why? So that I can bear fruit. As naturally as a pear tree bears fruit. So that I can be the person that I was created to be. My life can do the things it was meant to do. What a gift. These are the things we're going to be thinking about together over these next few weeks. What does a rule of life look like for the Christian? How do we be intentionally Christian without being legalistic and dogmatic? We major in either ors. I either have the most rigid of plans, I'm a monk, I must go live in the monastery and pray 12 times a day and fast and give up all of my music. Or I'm just kind of going to feel it out, you know? I'm just going to do my thing and pray occasionally and see what happens. One of the reasons that I know that I'm Anglican is because Anglicans are committed to what's called the via media, the middle way. And as a rule, I am tempted to barter in extremes, one side or the other. What I often find is what I really need is to find my way to the middle ground, the way of the middle, the middle way. I can't fall over here into extremism and asceticism and make my life this miserable, my life with Jesus just work, and I can't, it can't be nothing. How do we find our way to a middle ground? I would submit to you that we're all gathered here, I believe, no matter why you think you came, it's because you want a fuller and more abundant life. We actually do want a good teacher. None of us likes discipline, but we all know we need it. He loves you. Grace abounds for you. You are a free person. And also, there's a better way to live. And I believe Jesus knows it. So we're going to try to find it together. Figure out what it looks like for each of us, but also as a church. In this story, and I'll close here, um, Becoming Like Him. This story illustrates this third movement of what it means to become like him, I think, so powerfully well. And so here is what I want to say about becoming like Jesus. <laughs> Matthew 4. Jesus has just heard about John's imprisonment. 
And Matthew tells us that Jesus, when he heard that John had been put in prison, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea. Here's the first thing I want to say. Um, I think it's easy to read a text like that very flat. Um, Well, Jesus heard that John had gone to jail, and so now it was time for him to get to work. You know? And Jesus was so godly and duty-bound that, you know, John's in jail, and so I guess it's his turn. They're just going to pass the baton in that way. I actually don't think that that's what happened. Did Jesus know that John was going to go to prison? Did Jesus know that John was going to die? I don't know what Jesus knew. Here's what I do know is that Jesus was human in the way that I'm human and that Jesus loved John. And if somebody I know and love goes to prison and I have reason to believe he might not ever make it out, I'm sad about that. And so is the Lord. I think he went to Capernaum to walk it out. Where do you go when you feel bitter in spirit and hurt and sad, when you feel grieved, when you're afraid, when you need to pray? We go to mountains, we go to beaches, we walk it out with God. And I love that about Jesus. There's something so human about it. I think he was worried about John. I think he went to intercede for him, to pray for him, to beg for his life. Matthew tells us that when Jesus got to Capernaum, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whose sermon is that? That's John's sermon. In Matthew chapter 3, just the chapter before, Matthew tells us that John the Baptist came and began preaching in the wilderness of Judea. What? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is Jesus taking up the baton, taking the mantle that John had given him and moving it forward. And so you can say, well, he did that, you know, he was so godly and it was his job to do it. And, but take all the emotion out. But I just, that's not true. John had been faithful. He had prepared the way of the Lord. What a beautiful thing. He had done the thing he was called and created to do. But you will never convince me that Jesus didn't grieve over his death. I believe that John died a man knowing at peace that he had done what God had called him to. But it was a loss nonetheless. And Jesus took all that grief and all that loss knowing that his own was going to follow. And he went to the beach to pray. Here's the reason I'm making it a point to tell you that. What I love about Jesus is that this text invites me to imagine him walking the beach, and as he's walking and as he's praying, leading his own grief so that his grief didn't lead him. That's when he sees Peter and Andrew mending their nets, James and John in their fishing boat. In other words, because Jesus was practiced, had it as a habit to take his pain, his loss, his grief to the Lord, to pray it out, he became a person whose loss and grief could be a source of redemption and new life for someone else. I know we are not a black church, but that will preach, y'all. And I believe with all of my heart that someone needs to hear it. If you do not let the Lord help you lead this grief, it's going to lead you. If you do not let the Lord help you lead this disorientation and this pain, it's going to lead you. And if you will let the Lord help you lead it, I promise you, and I can promise you because I know him, I know him in whom I have believed, he will make your loss and your grief become a source of restoration and new life. 
I promise you. I can say it. Thanks be to God and by his mercy as a testament from my own life. The losses are going to come. It's life. We live in a broken world. I wish I could say to you, if you'll follow Jesus, there'll be no more loss. It'll just be gold chains and Cadillacs for you from here till heaven. But we all know it's not true. God, we wish it was true, but we all know it's not really. The loss comes. The world is broken. It's not as it should be. Death is, but it is not ultimate. He is better, stronger, more powerful. And he can take the death big or small in your life, and turn it into life. It's who he is. It's what he does. He did it for James and John. And I don't know what he said to them. But somehow, by the Spirit, as he was walking along, praying, I like to believe, arguing with God about John, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, look, lift up your eyes. And he sees Peter. I want to be that kind of person. I want to be in my own grief, carrying it in prayer, working out my life with God, living a with God life. And as I make my way, I could hear the Holy Spirit say, look at her. Go tell her to follow me. And without hesitation, they dropped their nets. You want to know why? Because they believed that in this person, somehow there was a different kind of life. I promise you, it is the life that he intends to give to you. It is not different for you than it was for Simon Peter or Andrew or James or John. Your life looks different than theirs. But Jesus doesn't. He's the same. And his invitation to you is to come and follow him. So, just in case this rather worked up sermon is for you, During communion, we make space for prayer. And if you have experienced a hurt and you feel lost in your anger and your frustration, if on the off chance that maybe, just maybe, God has said to you, I see you, I'm with you, I'm going to lead you out of this, When we come forward for communion, we're going to have people up here to pray. Just don't walk past somebody who's willing to pray for you if you suspect maybe God might be wanting to say something to you. We're a little bit charismatic, even though we're Anglicans around here. We do believe in the Holy Spirit. He is who he says he is. I will not live this life. I cannot live this life apart from believing that the kind of new birth, redemption, The good stories that Jesus wants to tell is still available for me, and it is for you. That's why we're here. So we'll pray. I will pray now, and then we'll pray again uh, during communion. Holy Spirit, we bless you, Lord. And I want to ask you, God, to just do what it is that you want to do. This is your space, Lord, your people, your story, your world. All things, Jesus, they are to you, through you, and from you. Have mercy, Lord. Lead us, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.